I want to begin with this picture um, of what's been called, this is a picture called the pale blue dot. A little tough to see in this room, but you see that little light, little pixel of light, that's us. That's the world from four billion miles away. In his book, Pale Blue Dot, inspired by this image, Carl Sagan wrote, look at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering. Thousands of religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every couple in love, every mother and father every hopeful child, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic drama. Our self-importance and delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe is challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Sagan says this pale blue dot exposes the delusion that we have a privileged position in the universe. Others think it does the opposite. Former atheist and cold case detective J. Warner Wallace studies the evidence and he concludes that this pale blue dot is remarkably privileged. He writes that the Earth's relationship to the sun is favorable to life. The Earth's atmospheric conditions are favorable to life. The Earth's terrestrial nature is favorable to life. The Earth's relationship to the moon is favorable to life. In other words, there is a locational fine-tuning to this pale blue dot. If we are slightly further or closer to the sun, no life. If our orbital tilt or the tilt of our axis is slightly different, no life. If our rotation was slower or faster, no life. If gravity was stronger or weaker, no life. If the earth's crust were much thicker or thinner, no life. If the moon were much bigger or smaller, no life. So there's this locational fine-tuning by divine hand, but there's also a fine-tuning of the forces governing atoms and matter and chemicals, all of which privilege life on this pale blue dot. So Wallace concludes, the fine-tuning in the universe is part of an overwhelming cumulative case for the existence of God. But I wonder if we can take both Sagan's and Wallace's point together. Because Sagan's point is not all bad. I mean, look at that. Look at this. How humbling. Sagan says, think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that they could become momentary masters of a fraction of that dot. So on the one hand, he's right. We should be humbled by the grandeur of our cosmos. On the other hand, what if we follow this humility not to a cosmic despair, as he does, but to cosmic hope, not to No one will save us from ourselves but ourselves, but to awe and gratitude for how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. In this final sermon of our series, Union with Christ, the eighth and final sermon, I want to look at the cosmic scope of our union with Christ. Union with Christ, says Wilborn, stretches our horizons like nothing else can. 
It adds breadth and length and height and depth to our daily lives like nothing else will. Union with Christ means four things, at least. It means we're a part of a larger family, a broader mission, a longer story, and a deeper love. First, union with Christ means we're part of a larger family. Union with Christ invites us out of what the sociologist Robert Bella has called radical individualism that characterizes life in the days of the iPhone. We're so post-enlightenment, it's all about us, individualistic. This is the water we swim in, right? Not to mention our own selfish hearts just predispose us to think life is about us. At least, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I can. Um, W.H. Auden, the poet, once wrote that each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his own freedom. Each in the cell of himself or herself is almost convinced of their own freedom. He could not have imagined the iPhone when he wrote these words. The average smartphone user picks up their phone 150 times a day. Humanity logs a billion hours, more or less, on YouTube every day. A lot of it on personal devices. Two-thirds of users show classic signs of addiction and withdrawal with their personal devices. Now, despite the promise of connection, increased smartphone and media use is highly correlated with a number of negative side effects, um, including rapidly rising loneliness. One recent study by Cigna concluded that three out of five Americans are lonely. Three out of five. Meanwhile, according to the CDC, loneliness correlates to dramatically increased health risks of all kinds. Social isolation, loneliness, it correlates with a dramatically increased health example, to heart, patient, heart failure patients. So if your heart fails and you go into the hospital, and if you're lonely and isolated, you are associated with nearly a four times increased risk of death. A 68% increased risk of hospitalization, just generally. 57% increased risk of emergency department visits. Now these stats tell us that loneliness is literally breaking our hearts. We are desperate for connection. And technology makes lots of promises about connection. But apparently it can't quite connect us the way we deeply long to be connected. Through the series I've said, union with Christ means you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Now English is a bit tricky, of course. The, first, the second person, singular and plural, is the same unless you're in the South where we say y'all because the South is smart like that. <clears throat> but of course in New Testament Greek, there is a distinct second person plural. So we know when Paul is speaking, for example, to you as an individual or to you all as the church. So 1 Corinthians 3.16, Southern style. Don't y'all know that y'all yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all's midst? How often have we read that verse and just been like, it's all about me? It's not, it's about the church. So yes, you are an individual stone in the temple, but you're part of God's temple, his church. So the New Testament actually sees the bond of being in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, and you are in Christ, and you are in Christ, and I'm in Christ, then we are in Christ together. And the New Testament sees this bond as tighter than flesh and blood. I mean, we heard Jesus' teaching in John 17 that Cindy read. Jesus is praying for those who believe in me through the apostles' message. Who's that? Us. He's praying for you and I and the church. And he prays, that all of them may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Listen, in them and you and me, I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Complete unity, he prays. In other words, there is already a unity because we are in Christ. It's established, but it's waiting to be expressed in completeness. 
In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words, Christian community is not an ideal which we have to realize and strive for, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we must come to participate. So our unity is given to us in Christ, and now we must learn to live increasingly in it. So union with Christ gives us a high view of the church. A high view of the church, because like it or not, you are a part of a larger family. And very practically, this has a couple of pressing things to say to us. First, about loneliness. Second, about division. To a world dying of loneliness, but longing for connection. The family of God offers a community that is not built on fickle and shifting ideas of life stage or shared interest or cult of personality, but an actual, real, dare I say ontological, to use a fancy word, a real spiritual unity forged by Christ. A unity you don't have to make, but one you get to enter into. Second, you're a part of a larger family, and this has something to say about the divisions that all of us, all of us are tempted to live into. I mean, you all know them well. I could name the usual. There's masks and vaccines, and there's critical race theory and political allegiances and all kinds of stuff. These are real, and these are pressing, and these are potent divisions. And union with Christ does not tell us that, you know, um, pretend they're not real and pressing potent because they are instead what it does is it gives us something more real and more pressing and more potent to live into jesus is speaking of marriage when he says it but marriage is analogous to christ and his bride the church so as we look at the divisions and that threaten to tear the church apart listen to jesus's words from mark 10 to those who are united in christ therefore what god has joined together let no one separate what did the face of Jesus look like? What, did, what were the emotions that were filling up his words as he prayed, may they be one, Father, as we are one? Yeah, but he didn't know how hard it would be. And his flesh was torn in two so that you would no longer be Jew and Gentile, but one family. His flesh, not yours not mine. He knows the cost of unity. And the church insults the blood of Christ when we bicker about lesser things. Again, I don't want to minimize its attention we have to walk. Again, it's not that these things aren't pressing and important. It's that your union with Christ is more pressing and more potent and more powerful than anything else that might divide you. So, for example, at Advent, I pray that one way that we would grow in this is to grow more ethnically and socioeconomically diverse, so it would increasingly reflect the diversity of God's family and his kingdom. D.A. Carson's words conclude well. He says this, the church is not made up of natural friends. We're not an affinity group. And when the church divides along affinity group lines, you've heard me get on this before, you know, when it's like, we're the mask church, or we're the anti-mask church, or we're the Republican church, or the liberal church. That's not the church. The church is not a group of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us is not common education or race or income or politics or nationality or accents or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Christ's sake. So union with Christ won't let us give in to this radical individualism that is dividing us. Jesus would have died just for you. He would have but he didn't. God so loved the that he gave his son. 
Union with Christ doesn't allow us to go in for Jesus, yes, church, no, Christianity. It invites us into a high view of the church, the larger family that we belong to. And I know this can be a process for many of us, especially those who have pain in the past with church, and many of us do. Many of us have been failed and wounded by the church or her leaders in really difficult ways. And so God's got to do a work of healing to bring us back into a healthy church family where we can experience this reality, that we're part of a larger family, even as we're tempted to just go in on ourselves in our own way. So union, means, union with Christ means we're part of a larger family. Second, union with Christ means that we have a broader mission. Um, the fundamentalist, modernist controversy of the 1920s began splitting the church between those who conceived of the church's mission in terms of dogma and proclamation, fundamentalists, and those who thought of it largely in terms of social good and ethical action and so forth, modernists or fundamentalists and liberal. We continue to wrestle with this tension today, obviously. We might try to simplify the tension by asking it this way. Is the mission of the church primarily to declare the gospel and its truth or to demonstrate the gospel in our actions? And his really excellent article I highly recommend to you, I know some of you have read and shared already, it's uh, the six-way fracturing, fracturing of evangelicalism. The six-way fracturing of evangelicalism by Pastor Michael Graham assigns six numbers to six fracturing subgroups of the evangelical church. So it begins first, number ones, on the far right. He calls neo-fundamentalists, new fundamentalists, inheriting the fundamentalist modernist controversy, the fundamentalist side. Deepest concerns here are political and theological liberalism. The church mission clearly and unapologetically God's truth to a godless culture. That's the church's mission. Second, mainstream evangelicals. And we're moving kind of right to left. Second, mainstream evangelicals might be a little too, uh, you know, a little wary of too extreme a form of fundamentalism, but like neo-fundamentalists, they're more wary of liberalism. The primary mission of the church is to convert people to Christ and fulfill the Great Commission. Third, neo-evangelicals, kind of in the middle, shy away from the term evangelical a little bit because of the political baggage. They don't, not quite sure, but though they remain doctrinally orthodox. They say the creeds, they believe the creeds, but they're equally troubled by fundamentalists and modernists alike. They see the far right as failing to engage in things like sexuality, race, or, or ethnicity, and discussions around racism and systemic injustice. As failing to engage in those conversations in helpful ways, and they see the far left as abandoning the historic doctrines of the church and getting soft on doctrine. So the mission of the church then is to live peaceful and good and quiet lives in godly witness to Jesus. That's the emphasis. Let's do our thing, let's be faithful, and let the chips fall. Fourth, post-evangelicals no longer define as evangelical. They've Rejected the label, usually because of a, a painful upbringing within a fundamentalist environment, often. And so they become mainline or Catholic or Orthodox or maybe Anglican. And they're more vocal about critiquing the first three categories. They're far more concerned with abuse and corruption in the church and Christian, Christian nationalism in the church and, and structures of injustice in the culture than they are liberalism. The mission of the church is to be more socially engaged than theologically engaged. Fifth and sixth, we have a de-churched and, and de-converted category. But just looking at the four categories I've named from one to four, Graham's thesis is this. Like given the buffet of choices that we all have in America on every street, 
every street corner, Americans are increasingly sorting themselves out along these lines. Increasingly, it will be harder and harder and harder for pastors and churches to hold together any more than two subgroups side by side. In other words, ones and twos might be able to be at the same church, but ones and fours, no. And he may be right, but I hope and pray that he's wrong. And I, I hope and pray that Anglicanism and that Advent can be exhibit A. Because if Christians who are united to the God who died for the people who were killing him, his enemies, if they cannot live in community with people whose ideas they don't really jive with, is there any hope for the world? I mean, who else has the resources to live in a community of unity? In fact, union with Christ shows us that the apparent tension, there is tension, but it's not fully, not re- it's not fully irreconcilable, and here's why. The, the fundamentalist and modernist impulse. On the one hand, Jesus' ministry pro- proclaimed the truth, didn't it? Quite clearly. Matthew 4, 7, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And some of the people with a more modernist impulse are like, Ooh, let's not use the R word, repent. Uh, um, no, he did. Profe- he was a prophet. He spoke truth clearly to people in power and challenged them in really difficult ways. And as a result, many people hated him right? So those who have this fundamentalist impulse have something true. There's something beautiful and faithful about this impulse that the mission of the church is to declare the truth to a sometimes hostile world. On the other hand, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he enacted the kingdom, didn't he? Healing the sick and toppling unjust power structures in the temple, turning over tables, serving the poor, tending the lowly and the outcast and the immigrant and the widow. So there is indeed something faithful about the modernist impulse that the mission of the church must embody the justice of Jesus. It's not the social gospel, social justice gospel. It's not a separate thing. The gospel doesn't act God's justice. It must. So there's something beautiful about both impulses here. Likewise, there's something troubling and problematic on both extremes. Some of, you know, each of these groups, each of us who are pulled in one of these directions, there's clusters of sinful tendencies and sinful thought patterns that we get drawn into. So neither approach is entirely right and neither approach is entirely wrong. Does that make sense? But what is best about each approach on the left and the right is reconciled in Christ, who was a preacher and a prophet and a king. He declared and he embodied the kingdom of God in truth and in justice. And so the church can no more separate his truth and his justice than Christ can be torn in two. Because that's the Christ we're united to. So then the invitation is to learn to be a community that humbly and kindly and without contempt for one another seeks to both graciously learn from those who are different from us. If you're a four and they're one or you're one and they're four seeks to both learn from and challenge. You know, we all have different influences and life experiences and upbringings and points of pain and perspective and educations that have predisposed us to be somewhere on this spectrum. But can we try to be a community with a mission as broad as the mission of Christ, mission of truth, of declaration, and of justice, and of enactment and demonstrating the gospel? So yeah, we're going to confront our own idolatries, politically and otherwise, and others' idolatries, politically and otherwise. But as we do, can we please take this call to unity seriously? Jesus meant it. Can you imagine the emotion 
And the words as he's praying, Father, make them one, as we are one. This is a real unity that we have, that we must participate in. So it means we're a part of a larger family, a broader mission. And third, it means we're a part of a longer story. Elon Musk was asked why he wants to colonize Mars with a billion people, a million people before he dies, and that's his goal. Colonize Mars with a million people before he dies, and he responded by saying this, so that we have a future that is inspiring and appealing. You have to have a future that makes you want to live, he says. If the future does not include being out there among the stars and being a multi-planet species, I find that incredibly depressing. Now listen, I being a multi-planet species sounds awesome. <laughs> but can I have the next slide? I want to say, Elon, we already are among the stars. Here's another picture of the blue planet. Next one. I mean, look at us. This blue, pale dot. This one isn't so pale, is it, as you actually get closer. This dot, de- this, this just overflowing with crashing salt water and purple mountains and humming crop babies, especially at our house. Um, I mean, Elon is doing incredible things as he tries to write a chapter of human history that he finds compelling and worth living for. I mean, he really is doing awesome stuff. We all look for a life story that we find meaningful. And it is generally agreed that this is difficult to do in modern life. Moderns feel like water plants, says Wilborn. Rootless, disconnected, cut off from history, adrift. Where do I come from? Where am I going? Maybe Ancestry.com can, can tell me, you know. Who am I? What's my story? There is no longer more grand story than union with Christ. I mean, think about the opening act, Ephesians 1. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. This present moment, in him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17. How about the end of the story? And night will be no more. This is Revelation 22. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they, they will reign forever and ever. See, in Christ you have this eternal story. Even if five billion years from now the sun swallows the blue planet, as some expect it to do, we, and we, we never made it off the planet, we never became a multi-planet species, we still have a blessed future among the stars, so to speak. The Lord himself will be our son. Union with Christ means we're part of a larger family, a broader mission, a longer eternal story. And finally, union with Christ means that we are loved with a deeper love. I'd like to end this series with Paul's prayer from Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, because None of the far too many words that have been spoken in the series over the last eight Sundays will make a bit of difference in your life or my life unless we actually apprehend what Paul is praying here and it actually happens in our heart. So please listen carefully to this prayer from Ephesians 3 again. Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Now listen to what he's praying here. Just take a moment. He's praying that you're going to need strength to comprehend how big this love is. He's saying you're going to need the Spirit's help 
you're going to actually need his assistance and strength to even get it. Have you ever prayed that for someone, like for your spouse or for your kids? Dear God, give, give Jenny like, the strength she's going to need to just even begin to understand the vastness of my love. There's a new prayer. But think about this. May his strength to comprehend what, what the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's another interesting phrase. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you do that? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. My goodness. Paul writes these words to Christians who, by definition, already have Christ dwelling in their heart. It means to be a Christian. You're united to Christ. He's in you. So why does he pray this for them? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul prays that we would not simply know love. God loves us. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Got it. Okay. But to have our hearts overflowing with the fine wine of his precious love. To experience it. To be apprehended by it. To be gripped by it. That you would know that you know that you would know that you are loved by Christ. With this deep abiding love that's unbreakable. Union with Christ means you have a billion dollars of oil coursing beneath the ground under your feet. You are immensely wealthy. But so often you and I go on living in a kind of spiritual poverty because we don't tap into the resources available to us. I know I do. How do we tap into the treasures of Christ? We have to settle this in our heart. You are loved with a deeper love than you can imagine. You really are. You're going to need strength even to comprehend it. The truth is you don't comprehend it fully. You're in progress. Have you ever prayed that for someone? May they comprehend how much I love them. This is what God is praying for you right now. May Patrick comprehend how much I love him, how deep this love is. Father, would Chris please comprehend how much I love him? Give him strength to even understand it. This is not a cute religious promise. This is the fierce, unbreakable, holy love of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's yours in Christ. I want to conclude with this story that N.T. Wright recounts. Tells the tale that an old Roman Catholic archbishop once told. The archbishop tells the story of three rambunctious kids who thought it would be funny to go one by one into the confessional. And they confess all sorts of outrageous sins that they hadn't actually done. So they go in there and they confess this outlandish stuff. And the priest sees right through them very quickly. And the first two kids run out of the church laughing and giggling. But the priest catches the third and says, Okay, you've confessed these sins and now I want you to do penance. And your penance is this. I want you to walk up to the far end of the church where there's a portrait of Christ and a crucifix and Christ is on the cross. And I want you to look him in the face. I want you to say this three times out loud. You did all that for me, and I don't care that much. Three times. You did all that for me, and I don't care that much. And so the boy went up to the front, and he looked at the picture of Jesus, and he said it. You did all that for me, and I don't care that much. And he said it a second time. You did all that for me, and I don't care that much. But he couldn't say it a third time because he broke down in tears. And the archbishop telling the story said, the reason that I know this story to be true is that I was that young man and my life was forever changed. He went on to become an archbishop. 
So the end of the series on Christ the King Sunday, I invite you to consider the cross of Christ the King. If you have any doubts at all about the love with which you are loved, look to the cross. You are united to Christ, the King of the cosmos. Next picture. Some of you, you've probably all seen this by now. This is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. They fixed the Hubble telescope on this patch, tiny patch of completely pitch black sky. And this is what it came up with. To the naked eye, nothing. These are all galaxies, thousands of them. You are united to the cosmic king of the universe. And yet, look at this king's cross. Strange king, isn't he? He is gentle and lowly. Consider his blood, more precious than wine, which did overflow in deep love for you and for many. And in a moment, you're going to get to participate in that reality. So Carl Sagan, Elon Musk, not privileged, none to save us. I read the signs differently. I agree with a psalmist in Psalm 8 who says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. Father, I pray that you would help these truths to sink into our hearts, that you would humble us with them, that you've crowned us with your glory and honor by giving us yourself the truest thing that can be said about us is that we are united to you. We are now the righteousness of Christ. That you love us with a deeper love. I pray that that love, either for the first time, would penetrate defenses, shame, uh, besetting sins, patterns of thought. I pray you would penetrate those defenses and that someone, multiple people here, would just allow your love to go deeper. They would embrace, maybe for the first time, or maybe just, again, how deeply loved I am in Christ. And then you would send us out as a community, a community that both declares and demonstrates the gospel of you, our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.